Welcome to Audacious Water, the podcast about how to create a world of water abundance for everyone. I'm John Sabo, director of the Bywater Institute at Tulane University. On today's show, Water in the West from the perspective of the Walton Family Foundation. My guest is Morgan Snyder, Senior Program Officer for the Foundation's Environment Program. He works on the Foundation's Colorado River Initiative. Coming up, I talk with Morgan about where he thinks we can get new supply for the Colorado, how we fix the culture of water use in the West, and who will take the hit when supplies from the Colorado go down. Morgan, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here, John. Yeah, this will be fun. So let's start out and talk a little bit about Walton Family Foundation. What are their strategic areas in water? Like, where are you working and and what kinds of things do you work on? Yeah, we've been working in water as a collective, as at the foundation level for since 2008, 2009. And we were working on the Mississippi River Basin and the Colorado River Basin. Those are both places that are really close to the family themselves, places that that are important to them and really focused on the, the long-term health of rivers and the, our environmental system so that they support the environmental outcomes, but also like the long-term human certainty needs for, for water and community needs for water. And in the Colorado River Basin, it is how do we deal with the impacts of climate change on a system that is getting hotter and drier? And in the Mississippi, it's how do you deal with the issue, bigger issues of water quality um, and, and also in the face of climate change? But it's just a, a different picture over there where you know, we often have floods and, and too much water. And um, the the environment program also includes some work on on oceans, but that is separate from what I do. I, I work on rivers and I work on, on water and how do we manage for that in the face of climate change. That's great. So let's, let's try to cover both of those geographic areas in this podcast. Let's start out West with the Colorado. I, I like to say that I grew up in Colorado. I trained in California, owned a business and a house in Arizona, fished in New Mexico, skied in Utah, and partied in Vegas. Um, so I've been all over the West and all over the, the Colorado River Basin. Little segue, I just spent a week on a houseboat in Lake Powell, and it was daunting, right? Lake's down 176 feet. I mean, wow. Lake Mead's down 150, down to 27% of its full pool. I mean, it was the the observation that uh, that was most impressive to me was that you can actually see what are like tree rings in the sand. For each year, um, you can see the the infill, you know, and but you can also see how far it goes down. The thing that struck me is, you know, I think for most people, the solution probably for non-water wonks, um, I think it's easy to drift to, oh, this is a conservation question. This is we just need to use less. But if you look at those tree rings, every year they go down by several feet, sometimes ten this is a supply issue, not a demand issue, right? And you talked about climate change before. Hmm. Where do we get the new supply? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know, John, I, I would say it's, 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 it's on both sides. Like it's, it's supply and it's demand. And right now the Colorado river basin has been in 
chronic overuse. You know, since the the writing of the compact and the estimation overestimation of how much water is available, and you know, we're we're still using you know fourteen and a half or plus million acre feet of water a year, and you know, we're maybe getting twelve or twelve and a half, and the future looks like we are maybe close to an eleven million acre foot basin or ten million acre foot basin. Like we're just chronically overusing the amount of water that is falling from the sky and the amount of water that we're pumping out of the ground. But to your point too, it's like we we are still thinking about augmentation. You know, the the idea that a pipeline from Mississippi is going to solve all our problems or uh, desalination in Mexico and California is going to create new water surpluses. And I think that's the reality is we just need to shift our whole cultural mindset around this issue is like, how do we grow and thrive without going after a new bucket of water, where instead we are just focused on using what we do have better and getting better at, you know, growing food, building capacitors and and investing in our water systems in a way that is, is building a more resilient system that is tied to the amount of water we actually have or expect to have going forward. And, you know, with augmentation in terms of like desal, like I fully believe it's going to be part of um, the longer term solution, you know, but we're probably still 15 to 20 years away from getting that down to a price point that begins to make sense for for um, cities because it's still going to be extremely expensive water. And it's only going to be able to offset a small portion of the water that we're already losing in the Colorado River Basin in terms of losing and in terms of like the amount of water that needs to be pulled back and is already being pulled back through the drought declaration in the basin and how much even Arizona alone has had to cut back. I think you have um, Central Arizona Project estimating that they have held back 800,000 acre feet of water use in the past year. And I think desal is going to maybe be able to pick up about a fifth of that eventually, you know, into the future. And, and so, yeah, I, I think it's really about figuring out how do we grow using less water, improve the security and certainty of our water for people and nature at the same time. And, and that's our big challenge right now. I want to come back to the thriving and growing piece because I like that a lot. But before we go there, let's talk about this culture shift. What, you know, without being completely precise, agriculture uses 80% of the water in the West. The other 20 goes to industry, power production, and cities, mm-hmm. uh, roughly, so without yeah. being precise. How do we, and, and at the same time, I remember as a kid in Colorado, avocados cost four bucks a piece, <laughs> right? And now you can get them for 50 cents. And that's in part because of the price of water, right? And so there's this, this lifestyle, this quality of life that has come part and parcel with, with the water use culture that we have in the West. How do we fix that? Yeah, a lot of it, fully agree. It's like a lot of the water that we're using is to grow, grow food, food, which we all eat and need. 
to to continue to thrive. And but we're also growing a lot of grass, you know, and maybe growing too much grass. And this is both in the urban areas where you know our front lawns are consuming a huge amount of water, but also in the amount of water that is being grown in terms of alfalfa and forage crops. And some of that is being consumed for like a, an incredibly important market for dairy products and um, products like, you know, yogurt and cheese and milk that you know, school-age children depend on to be able to be grow healthy. And But there is also a lot of alfalfa that's grown and, and exported every year. I think we need to really take first what is the most important step we should be taking to secure our own water future in the United States and with our partners in, in Mexico and the seven basin states and the 30 federal, uh, federally recognized tribes. Like we need to be able to balance the amount of water use that is actually available in the Colorado River Basin. And that's going to require finding ways to, to use less water in agriculture. And both of, both of this is like upgrading our agricultural infrastructure, but also like finding new products to be growing that use less water, whether it's like saying, you know, I've, I've been a part of some projects where it's like you're growing barley instead of corn, or you are, uh, some work that's happening in, um, Arizona around a desert plant, desert shrub called Waiuli, which is using two to two and a half acre feet of water versus the six acre feet of water that alfalfa is using. Like we, we're, we need to invest with communities, like agricultural communities to help them go where they want to go, which is to continue to have thriving rural communities and thriving agricultural operations. But Use finding new markets and finding new ways to like uh, grow things that and products that that are meaningful and help us grow our the food we need, but also the fiber we need, and really just going to result in less consumptive use of water. I think the um, the challenge is that we are embedded in international markets to produce commodities with an incredibly precious resource in our water. And we're making decisions that are not around what's best for our long-term future, but what's best for our short-term profit gain. And that is coming to head now, where we need to really be investing in, in ways that allow us to continue to have profits while growing our communities, but also long-term securing our water supplies. Coming up, I ask Morgan about which irrigation innovations he's most excited about and whether he thinks we can use aquifers to store floodwaters underground for later use. I want to pivot a little bit toward back to supply. We'll come back to, to mm-hmm. quality growth and, and thriving. and So... One of the things that struck me when I was out on Lake Powell was it's this remarkable tourist opportunity, right? Like it's, it's, it's essentially like being on a lake in the Grand Canyon. Yeah. 
but at the same time, it's it's a centralized infrastructure asset managed by the federal government that six or six basin states in a country, another country depend on. Are there decentralized state strategies that you think could create new water in a sense that aren't connected to the supply of Lake Mead? When you're looking at our water system and our water security, I think between Lake Mead, Lake Powell, what is it? It has the capacity, I don't know if it's like four or five years of water use can be stored if those you know reservoirs are are full you know it's like huge amount of capacity to store water problem is they're empty right we've just been over overusing them those are those two reservoirs and you know the, the multitude of other reservoirs that are on the system they're incredibly important and i do believe that we'll get to the point where we bring down our water use and allow these reservoirs to slowly fill back up. But we need to augment what the types of infrastructure we're investing in. So we need some to be investing in, in nature, to be investing in a way that we have beavers, right? Like how do we, you know, you have beavers on a, and in a watershed leads to creation of wetlands, which leads to improved ability to capture stormwater, infiltrate into the ground, and then that can show up as later season flows. We're also looking at, and I know a lot of areas are looking at like, well, how do you treat, when? how do we go ahead and improve the amount of reuse that is going on, both at an industrial level and at an urban level? Also doing not just um, indirect reuse, but direct potable reuse of water. And we also have the opportunity to, instead of desalination, which is heavy industrial process, to doing using the power of wetlands and nature to be able to help treat treat water that's coming down. And I think there is a need to invest in natural infrastructure in a way that complements and, and improves the long-term security of our watersheds and our existing gray infrastructure storage capacities. And the um, expansion of wetlands through beavers, beaver dam analogs, or through rock detention structures and all the different ways that people like to say, like just using the power of nature to do what nature does, to be able to improve the health of our watersheds and to improve the health of our ability to naturally increase the storage of water distributed throughout a watershed and not just in singular kind of points like a um, a reservoir is something that we need to see expanded throughout the basin. And it's not going back to anything that is that wasn't already here before. We We had a lot of, we had a system that was full of beavers we had a system that was full of rivers that were meandering and slow and being able to slow water down, allow it to infiltrate and increase the, the capacity of storage on the landscape. And I think that's a really critical part of our long-term solution set 
because we're also seeing that the watershed being so heavily degraded over the last 100 plus years and the impacts of climate change in terms of it getting hotter and drier, the watersheds themselves are very brittle. And then you now have this like additional climate change impact on top of that. And we're seeing fires followed by floods. And then those floods lead to sedimentation. And we're losing storage capacity in our built infrastructure. So it's like we need the long-term health of our watersheds to be first and foremost one of the solutions that we're investing in to be able to manage the timing of water, to manage the quality of water, manage the storage of water. And that is ultimately what's going to help bring back some balance to our system and while we're also fundamentally using less water at a significant scale. Yeah, I mean, you're preaching to the choir there. And just to Put this in context for the listeners, and this is challenging because it's an audio media, um, and what we really need is a map for this. But when you think about where 10 years of storage in reservoirs are located, they're located in the desert on the border of Utah, Nevada, and Arizona. And much of that stretch of river is not where the big cities are, minus Las Vegas, and it's not where the farmland is, with some notable exceptions downriver. So the proposition I think that you're putting out is that, you know, if we can capture water in other places in the river network, in the basin that, that don't eventually drain to those centralized structures, then we're going to need less to be piped to us from those centralized structures, right? I would say we're going to, if we are going ahead and improving the ability to store naturally distributed storage is you know the concept that we're both talking about here if we're able to store water throughout the landscape we're going to help help the landscape go ahead and um adapt to the impacts of climate change where we're seeing snow melt happen sooner where we're seeing flashier events and precipitation or we're seeing a 90% average precip year only turn into 35% of a water year for a river because we're losing so much water in between. And what we need to do is close that gap of how much water is being lost to essentially extremely dry landscape by and keeping that landscape moist, rewatering our landscape. And so that you have water that doesn't just isn't just flashy, isn't just turning into a flood, isn't creating huge amounts of erosion problems, but you're taking care of the health of our watershed so that you can ensure that the water that we do have falling on our lands ends up benefiting the rivers and the groundwater, which we can manage when it's in the ground or we can manage when it's in a reservoir but we can't manage it if it hits the, the land and it's leading to floods or it hits the land and it's just drying out. And I'm not saying like you invest in green infrastructure and it leads to a whole new class of water. Like we're not making it rain more, right? We're just keeping it from losing 
keeping us from losing what we do have coming down our watersheds and the ability to like go out there and actually like, I don't think it's a, it's not a game of like, how do we get more water? It's a game of like, how do we manage what we have better? How do we help invest in our gray infrastructure and our natural infrastructure in a collaborative way so that they reinforce each other and help us adapt to the impacts of it getting hotter and drier. And the new water resources or the new opportunities for water, desal, again, again, it's going to be super expensive. I don't believe we will ever find something that is going to be on par with the Lake Mead and Lake Powell. We've already built the largest reservoirs on our system that the system can really even hold. And so I, again, it's just like we have to fundamentally reduce chronic overuse of our water systems and conservation, honestly, like that's our new source of water and it is the cheapest source of water. Conservation, reuse, those are critically important components of how do we meet this challenge. So on that point, that's a point well taken. Um, and, and I'm you know, happy where this conversation is going. You mentioned that you threw out a couple of numbers. We, we negotiated the compact at 14.5. Um, 17.5. 17.5. We're at, where are we now? 12, 12 and a half, something like that? Yeah, we, we've been using, we're using around 14 and a half every year. But the reality is we're, I don't know, it's like the last 20 something years, it's closer to 12. 12 and a half million acre feet. So, so 12 and a half and it, and it may go to 10 and a half mm-hmm. with some projections. So that's, that's a difference of 4 million acre feet. Um, who's going to yeah. take the hit? The river is the water users on the river right now trying to make those decisions. Right now we're seeing the efforts of past agreements beginning to be enacted, right? The drought contingency plan, we just reached tier two reduction levels on the drought contingency plan. The drought contingency plan was signed in 2019. And it was, I I think, like one of the the largest voluntary water conservation agreements, you know, in history. It was 1.2 million acre feet, up to 1.2 million acre feet. But, and everyone was celebrating that. But we're now at the point where we need to come, what the Fed said, we need to come up with two and a half to four million acre feet of water savings like today, yesterday. Like it had, it, and in order to keep Lake Mead and Lake Powell, this essential infrastructure we all own as the public, uh, to keep it from ultimately degrading, to keep it from not being able to serve the purpose that we we have set it up to is to capture and deliver water. And, you know, you were talking about it earlier, like we have to find savings in agriculture, right? We, we have to, because that's where 80% of our water use is. Um, and a lot of um, overuse is, is happening in agricultural production of the agricultural products. Like, I think there is some 
statistic someone put up or some example someone put up, like, even if we cut off all the top five major cities in the, in the West, you know, like Denver and Phoenix and Salt Lake City and LA and so on and so forth. Like if we cut off all the major urban areas, we still wouldn't be able to achieve the water conservation goals that we've set forth for ourselves, the two and a half to four million acre feet. We need agriculture to be able to step in and step in big on 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 reducing consumptive use of of water. And so it'll it's already take Arizona's already taking a hit. There's a lot of conversations happening in California around the amount of water use uh, that California is taking, especially in between Imperial Irrigation District and Coachella. There's just a huge amount of water being used in the lower basin that needs to find a way to be reduced. And, you know, I think our position is like, it is up to the water users, it is up to the communities to be able to get to an agreement. And we're here to support them in any way that we can, whether that means things like new markets for new low water use products, but we're finding ways to expand reuse and conservation. But I, I would say that the amount of water savings that this basin needs, we need agriculture to be the leaders in how we pull ourselves out of this. Essentially, it's a crisis. Right? We are a year away from points where we won't be able to deliver water into the lower basin states because the water levels in these reservoirs are just getting so low. One more question on this, and then I want to turn to groundwater and climate change. So an 80% bucket, that's a big bucket, ag. And like you said, there's a lot of ag in the lower basin. This isn't part of the question, but I push back a little bit on that because one could say, and I think you'll agree with me, Hmm. that the growing conditions in the lower basin are fabulous for things like winter lettuce, right? If you want to eat baby greens all year round, that's where they're going to be produced, right? Yeah. So Putting the argument aside, why doesn't that go away? Because that's there's a reason for it. It's providing unique crops, niche crops that wouldn't exist if if we weren't growing there. Transitioning to more efficient irrigation is expensive. What kinds of innovation have you seen in solving that piece? Because I think that's the roadblock, right? It's expensive, A, to buy the stuff, B, to maintain it, and C, maybe to change your rotation to match that because you have an infrastructure set up to do that. Yeah. On that point, like I absolutely agree. Like we all need agriculture. We're all consumers of agriculture and we, um, but, but we also know that agriculture is the, the major water user and needs to be, help us show the way for how we use less water while still being able to produce the food that our our country, our nation, our people need, and the upgrades, the Im- improvements through efficiency, both to like the canals that deliver the water, to the different types of irrigation practices, like from sprinklers to drip irrigation, all of those are significant investments. Along with like if you're trying to move into markets for crops that don't really have yet a strong market, you have to build a way to move all of the the product through supply chain 
to hit your end consumer. And, and so it's not just the what needs to happen on the farm, it's what needs to happen within communities, what needs to happen within markets to be able to drive the adoption of new lower water use crops or approaches to growing existing crops. And the federal government, I think, and USDA, NRCS, Farming Agriculture, Natural Resource Conservation Service, they are critical partners for, for agriculture, uh, always have been and are always going to be. They are working on behalf of agriculture to help them become a, uh, adapted to these new challenges. And we have two things that came up in the last couple of years, the bipartisan, bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act. And I think the Inflation Reduction Act uh, alone has $20 billion for climate smart agriculture. Investments from the federal government and state governments are critical to be able to help us adapt and to help pay for the types of infrastructure that we're talking about within agriculture, but also within cities and also within the land base and how do we invest in, in nature. So we're seeing the that there is this huge amount of one-time monies that has come through those two different bills that I mentioned earlier. And what we need to be able to do is take advantage of those dollars to the best possible so that we can begin to massively adapt to our water use challenges. And so those federal programs are a necessary component of how we ultimately help solve this problem. But Right now, we're also in this position of like money isn't really because of the amount of money that's out there. It's not really the problem, right? Like what a lot of the challenges that we're seeing is there isn't this well-defined project pipeline of these types of projects showing up at the office of the, of the federal agency who's got the funding or the state agency who's got the funding. And that is a, a big gap in terms of how we make this shift. And so we as a you know, philanthropy, we see this as a, a really nice niche for us. It's like, how do we help build that project pipeline so that we can take advantage of these monies and, and help us adapt, not just in the short term, but in, in the long term? So interesting that you bring up project pipeline. I had an episode that just dropped this week and and several in the past month have been on corporate water stewardship, which which you guys are engaged in as well. And and it's something that I work in centrally. And I I think one of the things um, that's always a limiting reagent is is that there isn't um, well two things. One, there isn't a big project pipeline, and two, there isn't a strategic development of that project pipeline such that you're going after not the low hanging fruit, but the the projects that are going to make a difference. And I think, you know, John Radke at Coke calls this random acts of kindness, right? You know, how do we move from random acts of, of kindness to a, to a model that's strategic, uh, collaborative, and, and that, that builds that pipeline in. So I, I like that a lot. I think that's a good place to be. And it's a good place to, to, to stop here and move on to groundwater. Okay. That's it for this episode of Audacious Water. 
If you like the show, please rate or review us and tell your colleagues and friends. For more information about Audacious Water, visit our website at audaciouswater.org backslash podcast. Until next time, I'm John Sable.